Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. My name is Dr. Sanjay Janeja. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, also known as the Onc Doc on social media. And on Target Cancer, we basically talk about all the things that you want to know outside of regular, you know, chemotherapy and immune therapy, even though we talk about that as well. And that's why I'm super excited as somebody who did intermittent fasting, but I don't know if it was technically the right intermittent fasting. We have Dr. Jason Fung, who is a nephrologist and really just like a metabolic kind of expert where and when it comes to um, glucose regulation, intermittent fasting, fats, and kind of dispelling, are fats bad? Are they not? People say you end up eating a lot of fat on a keto diet. Is that a good thing? So Jason, if, if we may, uh, I would love to get into those things. And thank you for being here. Sure. Great. Great to be here. Thanks, Sanjay. Yeah. So one of the things that a lot of people uh, talk about with intermittent fasting, you know, just to get right into it is, is it the traditional intermittent fasting that's the only real intermittent fasting when you go kind of that you know 24 36 hours or does it count if it's that 16 to 18 hour uh duration where you're um not eating or you know versus two to three days what are they both intermittent fasting i know they are in in semantics but are they for functionally the purpose of what someone's trying to achieve if it relates to uh decreasing your cancer risk and and mobilizing you know weight loss um, they both can work. I mean, you don't have to do the longer fast if you don't want to. It's a very uh, sort of complicated issue. Um, you know, it's it's not so simple as, oh, you can fast and reduce your risk of cancer. You can reduce it, but it's, it's in relatively complex ways. Um, that was sort of what I talked about in the cancer code a little bit more because a lot of people thought it was just, you know, you fast and then you're going to, you know, reduce your risk. But it turns out that it's a lot more complicated than that. And that's sort of one of the things that I sort of delved into in that book was sort of the how cancer develops. Because, uh, you know, what I thought was very interesting was that it actually went far, far, far beyond just simple metabolic disease, uh, but incorporated a lot of things and how our sort of ideas of how cancer develops, like what is cancer? How they've changed in the last 10, 12 years, I think that's been sort of a really fascinating journey. Uh, so fasting can affect one aspect of it, but doesn't affect all the aspects of it. Like there's other other things. Um, the, the, from metabolic standpoint, of course, the good thing about fasting is that it's not just about low carb because there are certain uh, nutrient sensors in the body that are also growth factors. So you have insulin, which is great for low carb, but for uh, sort of AMPK as well as um, mTOR, both of them are also growth factors, uh, as well as nutrient sensors. And fasting affects all of them. So uh, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting discussion uh, for sure. But yeah, any of those can work. I mean, you can do shorter fasts, you can do longer fasts, uh, but it's that's it's sort of a combination of sort of hyperinsulinemia, which is a, a sort of become a very well-defined risk factor for a lot of diseases. And so, you know, if you look at things like obesity, the risk of obesity, uh, the risk uh, of cancer and obesity wasn't really well appreciated until 20, uh, 2001, I think. We never talked about it in the 90s. And it wasn't until there was that large study in the New England Journal published in 2001 that showed that, hey, it's actually a big risk factor. Now you have 14 different cancers, which are defined as obesity-associated cancers. 
So therefore, fasting, if it helps with that, presumably is also going to lower your risk. And these include some of the most important cancers like breast cancer, colorectal cancer, for example, pancreatic right. cancer. And so the obesity, because people ask like, why, you know, why does that be correlated? And, and some, you know, say it's the adipose or fat tissue itself that kind of has a little bit more of an inflammatory and less of an immune, you know, immune system conducive environment that can cause it. You said hyperinsulinemia. So is the fact that you need more insulin to regulate your glucose in your blood, you know, month to month, year to year, is it that itself that causes, uh, seems to cause an increased risk in cancer? Is it, is it the fact that your insulin is higher because you have increasing glucose? And ultimately, really, it's just the fact that your glucose levels are just kind of persistently higher? Or is it the actual like fact that you need more insulin itself that's also, in addition to the fact that your circulating glucose levels are higher, also a risk factor for cancer? And how? Yeah, I mean, I, we'd have to back up a little bit to two things. Like, I mean, I think so in terms of how insulin affects cancer risk, it's it's sort of a long <laughs> answer. Uh, and it's a different question than what you're talking about, which is insulin resistance versus hyperinsulinemia, which is a good question too. You know, insulin resistance is a very uh, nebulous term, right? Because the whole idea is that your blood glucose is high. And this is, remember, this is what we've been taught and it's all wrong. The, we were taught that, hey, something causes insulin resistance and therefore the glucose in the blood can't get into the cell. Therefore, your body has to produce more insulin in order to shove that glucose into the cell. Okay, so that's so-called insulin resistance. And that's sort of the whole wrong way to look at it. It's, it, it. it's not helpful. Because if you think about insulin resistance, then you get to the question. So you say, okay, what causes high glucose insulin resistance? Well, what causes the insulin resistance? And there you have no answers. It's like, well, so, so, so some people, for example, say, oh, it's due to dietary fat, or it's due to inflammation, or it's due to this, due to that. Well, after 50 years of knowing all about insulin resistance, we still don't have an answer for what is it. And the other thing is that if the solution is to give more insulin, well, that's what we've done for so many years, right? Uh, We said, well, you need more insulin to overcome that resistance, and that's going to make you better. So does it make you better? Absolutely not. Because if you think about a type 2 diabetic, you give them insulin. What happens? They gain weight. They gain fat. And what happens when you gain fat? Well, your diabetes gets worse. So you're giving insulin to a type 2 diabetic. They get fatter. Their diabetes gets worse. You give them more insulin. That's the whole... You're you're just making things worse. You're literally just throwing kerosene in the fire. Exactly. So if you think that was the most polite way of just like saying how none of this makes sense. (laughs) Like you were just very kindly saying exactly what that student (laughs) or resident would say. And but the way you said it somehow is just like that makes no sense. And uh, that was that was wizardry. (laughs) So yeah, please continue. So yeah, absolutely. So that's the complete. Yeah, and 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 I go in depth in, in the diabetes code. But the whole idea that this is the primary problem is insulin resistance. And then you ask the question, what is causing insulin resistance? We're like, I don't know, after 50 years, we don't know. It's getting worse. Like the epidemic's getting worse, but we don't know. So there's two ways to look at it. So you either have an underfill problem or an overflow problem. Okay. So think about the, the, the cell, the liver cell. If you have something that's blocking the entry of glucose into that liver cell, what's going to happen is that you're going to get internal starvation of that liver cell, right? Because glucose can't go in. Right. So therefore, what would 
happen? Well, you should lose weight. People should be skinny. They should have very, very small livers, shrunken livers, like type 1 diabetes. So you give insulin and everything gets better. So absolutely, that's, that's type 1 diabetes. That's nothing what type 2 diabetics look like. They have huge amounts of obesity. They have huge fatty livers and their blood glucose is high. So why can't this glucose go into the cell? So there's two possibilities here, right? It's either an underfill situation. So you're not getting the glucose into the cell. If you're not getting the glucose into the cell, why would weight loss help in any way with type 2 diabetes, with insulin resistance? It shouldn't. It's going to make no difference at all. So the other way to look at it is maybe this is an overflow problem. So maybe what's happened is that your insulin levels have been high for a long time. You've been shoving all this glucose into the cell for so long that this cell is just full of glucose. Therefore, what you would predict from this overflow way of looking at insulin resistance is that you have too much glucose inside the cell. It's overflowing. Now you have a big fatty liver. Check. That's what you get in type 2 diabetes. With this big fatty liver, it's going to try and get rid of all this fat. So you're going to pump out all this fat and you're going to get abdominal obesity. Check. That's exactly what you get. The reason the glucose cannot go into the cell is because insulin has opened up the glucose receptor, but there's so much glucose inside the cell, you don't have a concentration gradient to go down anymore. So glucose doesn't go in. It's just like if you have a, a suitcase, you know, you're putting your clothes in, you put your clothes in, no problem, no problem, no problem. Now it's full. Now you can't put clothes in. Well, why can't you put clothes in? What's the luggage resistance, right? Why is there resistance to this luggage from taking those two extra t-shirts? Well, it's full. That's the whole problem. So the solution is not to give more insulin to shove glucose from the blood into this bloated cell. Oh my God, it sounds almost barbaric when you say that. <laughs> You're literally like, why are we doing this? Well, <laughs> how does it make sense now. at all? Like this it entire underfill hypothesis, this internal starvation hypothesis of type 2 diabetes it completely doesn't jive with what you see clinically in any way. But that's what we're taught. In instead, if you think of it as an overflow problem, well, what's the solution? Well, get rid of all that glucose. Like getting into ketosis. Ketosis, intermittent fasting, losing weight. You can do it anyway. You can do it with low-fat diets if you want. But the point is that if you let your body burn off all that glucose, that is you lose weight, what happens? Your diabetes goes away. You're emptying that cell just like you empty the luggage and things get better. So the point is that giving insulin is the exact wrong thing to do because you're simply making the blood sugars better, but you're making the diabetes worse. Right? Just like if you have all this clothes lying around and you shove it into the suitcase, the suitcase is full, you keep shoving it, you keep shoving it, you keep shoving it. Well, it's better because you have less clothes to put in. But the problem, which is that that suitcase is overfilled, is made yeah, worse, which is exactly what you see. So after years, so remember the, uh, all those studies of looking at uh, tight A1Cs, right? Give lots of insulin, get your A1C down to six. Did it cause any benefits? No, absolutely not, because you didn't actually make the diabetes better. You made the blood glucose better, right? That's the symptom. Oh, my gosh. So the whole point is that if you think about it wrong, you get it wrong. So the whole issue is that you don't need more insulin. You actually need less insulin. Therefore, if you look at how you reverse type 2 diabetes, you don't need to give more insulin. You need to 
lower insulin because insulin levels are high. You need to lower insulin right. levels. The primary problem is not insulin resistance. The primary problem is hyperinsulinemia. And if you think about it that way, that completely jives with what you see clinically. So, the, the, you know, to get back to cancer, so the insulin resistance, the obesity, the type 2 diabetes, they're all problems, not of insulin resistance per se, but of hyperinsulinemia. So to get back to the problem of how that impacts on cancer growth is very interesting because, and um, so you have to understand that the way that the body works is that we have certain nutrient sensors. So understand that insulin is not originally, uh, if you look back in the evolutionary past in, in primitive cells, insulin is not used for blood glucose control. Insulin is a growth factor. As we evolved, what we did is you need to tightly link growth and nutrition. That is, if you have no food coming in, your body shouldn't be growing. So you look at mm. children who are malnourished, for example. They're very small. Then you get well-nourished and they grow like they just spurred up, right? Because your body uses the same molecule for growth as it does as a nutrient sensor. When you eat, insulin goes up. You tell your body, hey, nutrients coming in. That insulin is the exact same molecule that tells your body, hey, you need to grow because you need to grow while there's food available. And that's why insulin and insulin-like growth factor are the same thing, right? It's, they're, they're both linked right. to insulin, and they're not just nutrition. They're not just hormones of nutrition, but they're hormones of growth. So you have a situation where if you were to get insulin levels to zero, for example, and this, uh, Walter Longo showed this in the, um, they're called the Laron Dwarves of Ecuador. I don't know if you've heard of them. Fascinating mm -hmm. sort of story. So there's this uh, rare, you know, group of people in, in um, Ecuador who are basically dwarves because they have, they have IGF-1, so insulin-like growth factor, but they can't respond to it. So the receptors don't work. So essentially, they're, they're essentially very, very low insulin levels. And they're dwarves because they don't have that growth factor. The interesting part is that they're virtually immune to cancer. They don't get cancer because the growth hormone that they need is zero. So, you know, again, you have to understand that cancer is a disease of growth, right? And I'll get into this in a second, which is sort of how to look at cancer, which is a second really sort of fascinating, fascinating problem. So cancer is really like, um, you know, you have to think of it as a new invasive species, basically. The, the cancer cell has derived from your own cell, but it's become autonomous, right? So if you have breast cancer, it's that breast cancer is derived from your own normal breast tissue, same as the colorectal cancer. It's derived from a normal colon cell, but has become essentially autonomous, but still responds to growth factors. So if you are worried about cells growing, well, you need to lower growth signaling, which includes insulin. Insulin is a growth factor. So you look at breast cancer, which is one of the most well-studied for insulin. Breast cancer cells have like six times the number of insulin receptors that breast cells do. So you'd say, why does, why does the breast cancer cell need so many insulin receptors? Well, it runs on glucose. So you need lots of insulin receptors so you can be very sensitive to insulin so that as soon as you get a little insulin, it opens everything up, lets glucose flood into the cancer cells. In fact, if you grow cancer cells, and this was noted sort of 30, 40 years ago, 
if you grow breast cancer cells and don't put insulin in, they basically die. They can't get the nutrients that they need. They can't get the glucose into that cell. Those cancer cells are highly dependent on insulin to get the, the, the glucose that they need. And this gets back to sort of how cancer uh, energy uh, metabolism is actually much different than normal metabolism, which is probably what Tom was talking about and how some of that can play a role in treatment. So uh, again, that's why breast cancer, for example, in a disease, breast cancer cells, that is very sensitive to insulin, right? Because you have so many insulin receptors on that breast cancer cell. If you have hyperinsulinemia, you're just going to be feeding that growth, right? You're just going to be feeding that growth of the breast cancer cells more than you're feeding the growth of the normal cell. So therefore, you're going to favor growth in that situation. And therefore, diseases of hyperinsulinemia, that is obesity, type 2 diabetes, are well known to be associated with breast cancer. So again, if you think about it mechanistically, well, what's the solution? If you want to lower your risk, you will want to try and keep your insulin levels low. One thing that I always used to say was, you know, well, why is cancer, you know, a problem of, of the elderly? Like what's your biggest risk factor by far is age. And I would mostly say it's because of mutational error that goes undetected over time, gets carried over, et cetera. But this is a whole nother component, you know, like that, that argues, well, you know, we know that women when you're over 65 or 70, it's like one in four chance you'll have like a breast cancer over the next coming years at over 70 versus over 35. Is part of that reason, like because of the amount of growth factor and insulin that you are yeah. exposed to over time, which then pr permits, you know, especially hormone positive breast cancer, like that is generally older patients as opposed to triple negative. Is it that fact that they're constantly having more insulin around, constantly more growth factor, constantly more invitations over their lifetime to just kind of get neoplastic and then go rogue. That fits. I mean, that's a, you know, you can yeah. see how that gets. Yeah. Kind of and rough. you see the same thing with mTOR, for example, with, uh, you know, you get lots of growth in those cells. You see it uh, if you look at rates of cancer from, uh, you know, we know, for example, if you have indigenous people, Africans, for example, um, there's a very famous, um, you know, study, not study, but it was, uh, what was his name? He was Dennis Burkett. Uh, he, he is a missionary in Africa. What was very interesting is that when they went to Africa, they found that a lot of the whites were getting colorectal cancer, same as they did in Britain or Ireland, I think it was from. Um, but the natives did not. So the people in Africa, the Africans in Africa, didn't get colorectal cancer. When they followed this sort of white man's diet, for example, they all got colorectal cancer. And then what was the difference? He said it was fiber. It turns out fiber doesn't have much to do with it, but a lot could be due to the sort of refined diet and the sugar that, that they were eating. So remember, of course, the Africans were eating their traditional diet, didn't get any colorectal cancer. When you take that same African, introduce a completely different diet, which is sort of at the time, of course, highly refined flour, lots of sugar, you know, like 10, 50 times the amount of sugar that a, a typical African was eating, all of a sudden, cancer all over the place. You saw the same thing in Alaska, where you have uh, traditional Inuit uh, who ate mostly, you know, whales and seals and all this sort of stuff. Uh, traditional stuff. No cancers other than um, 
they, they got nasopharyngeal cancer due to Epstein-Barr virus, right? But they didn't get breast cancer, colorectal cancer. You take those same people, introduce a diet that is high in refined grain, so white bread and sugar. All of a sudden, you get rates of cancer that are approaching the white person. So you, 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 there's a very interesting period of time in the 30s and 40s where people uh, had actually sent, so Queen's University in Ontario, they would send an expedition every year to the Arctic to see why these um, Inuit people were immune to cancer. They didn't get cancer. Of course, they stopped that study. <laughs> they all started getting cancer because their diet changed, right? So you have to understand that it's not really about genetics. It's about the environment, which is much, much, much more important. Um, not to say that genetics isn't important, but it's how no, but we say it all the time here. Yeah, it's it's literally what's happening in the cellular level in your body and your life yeah. far more than what your tendency for cancer is. If it if you had a true genetic tendency, most everyone would die of cancer like if it was running. So then you know there's modifiable, you know, factors. Yeah. Obviously 85, 90% of which is 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 somatic is what we call it. And and in your lifetime. This is so fascinating. So yeah. so again, just to distill it down, I'm sorry to interrupt you, to distill it down, am I hearing you correctly that it's really the, when people say the sugar causes the cancer, we really need to think more so, or equally, I don't know if it's equally or more so, that it's really the insulin that's being sent to regulate the sugar, which remember is a growth factor that says grow, grow, which is what? Cancer means in Latin unregulated cell growth. So yeah. that's what you're saying. It's more of an issue of, of, of like you're inflaming. Don't mess with the animal. Otherwise, you know, at a zoo or whatever, because it will get mad. That's what we're doing when we're letting the insulin levels get high. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's basically um, you're encouraging growth by having all of these growth factors, which are nutrient sensors, right? Nutrient sensors are, are growth factors. So if you increase nutrient factors, then you will increase um, increase cell growth. And of course, cancer is a disease where anything that sort of favors growth is going to increase it. But it sort of gets back to sort of um, what I actually think is the most fascinating, which is what how cancer develops. And that was, um, you know, what I uh, sort of talked about, which is very interesting because you have to think about it as cancer developed. There's sort of three great paradigms of cancer. In terms of, you should ask the question, what is cancer? Most people, you know, have, they're like, I don't know. It's like, we have this very strange disease, which is uh, clearly there's genetic mutations, but everybody has the wrong idea in that they think it's uh, mostly about genetic mutations when it's mostly about the environment. So we went through sort of three phases of understanding of cancer, and we're on this sort of third stage, but most people still are stuck on the second stage. So the first stage of understanding was that we thought of cancer as a disease of growth, right? That's the first great paradigm of cancer. So it's basically a cell that grows too much. So that's really good. Um, so you, we came, you know, because that's the paradigm, you say, what's the treatment then? So the, the, the treatments are, if you have cells that grow, let's kill them. Right, so now you have surgery, which is you can cut them out. You have radiation, you can burn them out, or you can give chemotherapy, which is you can poison them. Right, and those are very successful. So those were developed sort of through the 30s, 40s, 50s. You had surgery's been around a long time, but radiation was developed in the early 1900s, 
and then chemotherapy sort of after World War II. And then in the 50s and 60s, you started messing around with how to sort of do combinations of chemotherapy. And that was very successful, but only up to a certain point. You sort of reach the limits of that paradigm. That is, cancer is a cell that grows. How do you kill cells faster than regular cells? Well, that's one way. But you, you reach the limits of what that could really do. So then through the 70s, you started to change from a growth paradigm. So this is a cell that grows. So now you sort of get to the next understanding of why are these cells growing, right? And that gets you to the genetic paradigm, which is the sort of next big sort of paradigm, sort of 2.0, the big next evolution of um, how we think about cancer. So we think about cancer as why are they growing? Well, they're growing because the genes are mutated, right? So you have oncogenes and you have tumor-suppressing genes. And if you mutate those oncogenes, you get excessive growth. So therefore, you get into the next great paradigm, which is that this is the genetic paradigm. Now you start to develop treatments like imatinib and trastazumab, Herceptin, for example, where all of a sudden you're not trying to kill cells anymore, right? It's a totally different paradigm because when you give a drug such as Gleevec, it was revolutionary, right? Totally revolutionary, revolutionized the treatments of, uh, of, of uh, CML, right? So yeah. the whole point is that you're not giving a treatment that is directed at killing cells. You're giving a treatment that's directed at correcting the underlying genetic mutation. So And is inhibiting its like mechanism of growth, basically. Exactly. Saying and the PER2 is, is, is yeah. great, like fantastic, right? So this is the 90s. So you've got oncogenes, you've discovered oncogenes, you've discovered tumor suppressor genes. So you went from paradigm 1.0, which is sort of, this is a disease of cells that grow. Now, why are they growing? Hey, genes are mutated. So let's fix that, right? We're getting to the root cause, right? So that's great. So then there's the Human Genome Project and everybody's like, you know what? We're going to cure cancer because all we need to do is figure out in this patient with colorectal cancer, what are their genetic mutations and how am I going to fix it, right? Then we're going to cure cancer. We just need to know what these genes are. So the Human Genome Project finishes in 2000 and of course, cancer is not cured, not in the least. And um, the problem was, and this became obvious very soon, is that it wasn't that you could, uh, you didn't find mutations, right? Everybody had, you know, had been thinking that it was the so-called, you know, we started with one mutation and one cancer. That was like the CML. Then you had this multi-hit hypothesis, right? You needed two mutations, right? So in colorectal cancer, you had one mutation, then you had a second mutation. And how did these mutations come? Well, they're totally random, right? It just happened that you got a mutation in this critical oncogene. So the, this was the so-called so somatic mutation theory. And uh, it predicted, well, you get two critical things, hit this oncogene, you get cancer. But turns out that it wasn't that you didn't find any mutations. You found way too many mutations. So you look at a typical can patient with colorectal cancer, he or she has 70 mutations. So now it becomes impossible to treat because you cannot simply take, you can't treat somebody with 70 different things. The problem is if you have patient A has 70 mutations, patient B sitting next to them in the chemo suite there has 70 completely different mutations. And yet this colorectal cancer looks exactly the same. Pathologically, it looks the same. So it was this, this whole idea that it's just random genetic mutations was all wrong. Because think about it this way. 
if you have colorectal cancer in a Japanese woman in the 1920s, that cancer looks exactly the same as a black woman in the United States. So 100 years later, half a world away, completely different nationality and completely different genetic mutations, yet these two cancers look exactly the same. And it's still pathologically, like on a slide. Path- yeah. On a slide, yeah. yeah. And so, so, so all these different mutations, different environments, yet they look the same. How can it be random? How can you have ran- 70 random mutations in a woman 100 years ago of a different nationality, half a world away, and it still looks the same as that same as that cancer that's sitting in front of me. It wasn't random at all. So this somatic mutation theory that says these are just random mutations is not right because they're not random at all. Basically, those cancers are developing according to a plan. They have to. Otherwise, how can patient A, right? It took. It came from. It, it developed completely independently from their genome. That from the colorectal cancer cell, patient B, completely independent evolution. So this whole genetic mutation theory, which is that one, you know, it's a couple of mutations is, is, is wrong. There's hundreds of mutations usually. So at the last, so, so after they did, after they did the human genome project, they did the cancer genome, what was it? Cancer genome study where they took, I think, 50,000, something like that. Cancers and and basically targeted, targeted yeah they, they they looked at the right. mutations and how many mutations are there well at the in 2018 I think I looked the last look there was six million mutations yeah so you're trying to develop treatments to fix these genetic problems but there's six million different problems that's not going to work so after imatinib after uh, you know the her two new Basically, you could really count on one hand how many genetically targeted mutations that are really tr- and truly successful in the way that Gleevec was. It's almost none because you haven't answered the question. Like this whole somatic mutation theory that it's a few mutations, that's wrong. This idea that it's random, right? Because remember, if you're a smoker, you're going to get lung cancer or you're a higher risk of lung cancer. Those are not targeted mutations, Right in the way that you can do it's CRISPR. It's basically random. The way it affects your genome is basically completely random. The way it affects your DNA is random. It's not like it targets growth specifically. So why do all those lung cancers pathologically look the same? And, you know, this whole, so so by the 2010s, the whole somatic mutation theory was going down basically in flames because it wasn't developing the treatments that were actually making a difference. Our apologies for the abrupt interruption. Dr. Juniager ran out of time and had to catch a flight. The second part of this podcast will be available June 22, 2023.